1: Tonight, straight from the source, hours from a critical deadline, will Israel and Hamas extend their truce another day? That and a new report from the New York Times that Israel actually knew the plan for the Hamas attack more than a year before it happened. Plus, indicted Congressman George Santos could be out of a job in just hours from now, and now he's threatening to take down his own colleagues if expelled from the House. And racism, hazing, sexual assault, what top-ranking military officials have been concealing from the public for years, we expose a Coast Guard cover-up right here tonight. I'm Pamela Brown, and this is The Source. And good evening to you, Caitlin is off tonight. Just three hours from another truce deadline. What could be the end of the pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas? Negotiations going down right to the wire once again on the seventh day of the truce, as a seventh group of hostages were freed and are now safely back in Israel. Only eight hostages released in this handover. Israel and Hamas agreed to count the two extra Israeli-Russian hostages released yesterday as part of the 10 required in this deal. There are significant questions about whether this deal can survive another extension. Negotiators initially believed Hamas wouldn't likely be able to offer more women and children to stretch the pause beyond an eighth day. And meanwhile, there is a major story tonight from the New York Times, also reported by Israeli media, that Israeli officials had the battle plan for the Hamas attack more than a year before it happened, but the Israelis... Largely dismissed it as aspirational, considering it too difficult for Hamas to carry out. I want to start with CNN's Oren Lieberman, who is live for us in Tel Aviv tonight. So, Oren, let's start with the truce. It expires in less than three hours from now. What are you hearing from your sources in Israel about what will happen next?
2: Pam, it is just after four in the morning here, so there are three hours until this truce is set to expire with no announcement from any of the sides here, neither from Israel nor Hamas, nor from Qatar, which has led the negotiations, that there is a deal in place to continue this for at least another 24 hours. It has been Qatar that has made many of the critical announcements, saying that it will continue, that there will be more hostages released. We haven't seen that announcement yet. Now the IDF has basically said they're ready to continue operations as soon as the order is given. We expect that order would come shortly after 7 in the morning, unless Hamas announces that they are ready to release 10 more Israel. Israeli women and children. But the uh, we haven't heard from the political echelon here about where those negotiations stand. We know they are ongoing. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was here and, and continues to be here, uh, but spoke and said that, that the need for a continued pause is critical, not only to allow for the release of more hostages, but also for more humanitarian aid to go through. He also said before Israel launches the second phase of its offensive in Gaza. It needs to have a plan for both the humanitarian aid and a plan to reduce civilian casualties in Gaza. That's been a major concern of the U.S. and, frankly, of the international community. Crucially now, we are simply watching the clock. Last night, this went down to the final few minutes when Hamas produced a list that was acceptable to Israel. As our colleagues have reported, including Alex Marquardt and M.J. Lee, Hamas produced two lists that were unacceptable to Israel. Now, it's unclear if we're in that same back and forth right now. This will very much go down to the wire, Pam. We will absolutely keep an eye on it to see if this war restarts in just three hours now.
1: Really getting right down to it as before. Thank you so much, Oren. Appreciate it. And I want to go to this New York Times reporting as well um, that Israel obtained Hamas's attack plan more than a year ago. It has also been reported in Israeli media. And the Times reports that a veteran analyst warned Hamas conducted a training exercise similar to what was outlined in those plans. Um, and so I want to bring in our Alex Markard here on this, our, our national security, our chief national security correspondent. Um, you know, this New York Times article really lays out all the warning signs from this pamphlet that the Israeli intelligence officials had received Would the U.S. intelligence have been aware of this?
3: It it is possible, Pam. They obviously have such a close intelligence-sharing relationship. Um, This New York Times article, uh, which just has some extraordinary warnings about this document, uh, they nicknamed the plan Jericho Wall. Mm -hmm. Um, It actually ended up being, Hamas' phrasing for it was the Al-Aqsa flood. But you had this character in this piece, a a female analyst who, who warned um, that this was a plan designed to start a war. She said it's not just a raid on a village, and her, uh, her officer, a colonel, uh, ignored that. This was military intelligence, so it is very possible that it was shared with the US side, which would be the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is the Pentagon, but this Times article is also saying this may not have been shared with the highest levels of, uh, of political leadership in Israel, so it likely was not shared with the highest level of, of US intelligence uh, leadership either. But we did see some warnings, both from Israel and from the US, that we've reported on in the, in the days before uh, this, the, this horrific set of attacks on October 7th. But essentially, they weren't taken seriously. And, and what it's being called is a, not only an intelligence failure, but a lack of imagination. Mm-hmm. The US and others thought that Hamas could do something, but that if they did something, it would be rockets fired across the border. They might get intercepted by the Iron Dome, and, but certainly not that Hamas would be able to break out of Gaza and, and carry out this kind of attack. The U.S., since October 7th, has made clear that they view this very much as, a, as a, an Israeli intelligence failure. Um, Hamas is not a major focus. Palestinian groups are not a major focus until now for the U.S. intelligence community.
1: And it's interesting that um, in, in this reporting that the view from some top officials in Israeli intelligence and defense was that it was aspirational. They wouldn't be able to pull this off. But you see some of the Hamas that GoPro video that they had just waltzing across the border, essentially, unobstructed, right, without... Um, without really anyone there to, to stop them. And so it really raises the question of why they were able to do that and, and why Israeli officials thought that it was so aspirational. You, know, you heard Oren um, talk about the truce that could end in a few hours. I wanna talk about that now because you have been extensively reporting on sort of why it has been going down to the wire. What can you tell us about what is going on right now?
3: It really could go either way. And we've got less than three hours before this deal expires. And the ball really is in Hamas's court. Israel has made clear that they will continue this pause if Hamas is able to come up with 10 more women and children. The U.S. and Qatar, which are at the center of the, these negotiations, they want to see this pause continue. But Hamas really does have to release more hostages. Or in reference, the, the list that had been rejected by Israel last night, that's because they didn't include only women and children. They had some dead bodies, of which we believe there could be a significant number that Hamas has. Um, Another list included elderly men. But Israel is saying, you have to give us all the women and children. So there's a lot of focus on what happens tonight. Um, If they come up with a list of 10 women and children, we'll see this pause extended by another day. But the US definitely wants to expand the conversation to include some of the men that they have, to include the Israeli soldiers that they have. So even if tomorrow goes smoothly and another 10 are released, we're getting into uh, a, a, a possibly another chapter where negotiations will have to start over the next categories. And in the meantime, if those negot- if the, the releases stall, we could see the military operation by Israel start back up again. That could happen. If not tonight, then certainly in the coming days.
1: And the big question, if it starts back up again, what will that look like? We heard what the Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been urging for Israelis to be more surgical in its approach to limit those civilian casualties. So, Alex, thank you so much for bringing your reporting to us tonight. And I now want to bring in the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren. I want to start with this new reporting that we were just discussing with Alex from The New York Times. What does this mean to the people of Israel? if, as the New York Times is reporting, that the government knew about the Hamas attack plan more than a year ago?
4: Well, good to be with you, Olivia. Actually, the report doesn't say that the government knew. It says news that the Army knew. We don't know how, how high up the chain of command that information went. Uh, but it's going to be part of an investigation that will follow uh, this war. And it will be a very thorough and far-reaching investigation. And everybody will be investigated, including the military, including the government echelon. Uh, Clearly there was an intelligence failure here uh, of a magnitude of October 1973 at the outset of the the Yom Kippur War where there were people in the intelligence community who warned about an impending Arab invasion and those uh, warnings weren't taken seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, just personally speaking, I was in the government and I was involved in the Gaza issue. Um, We all thought that, you know, that Hamas wore two hats. It sort of wore a, a, a terrorist hat, but it also wore a governance hat. It was the de facto uh, governance of uh, of Gaza, and that Hamas could be incentivized to wear the governance hat more than the terrorist hat by by giving them a lot of Qatari money, and we're talking about a lot of money, plus allowing about 20,000 uh, Gazan workers into Israel every day to work that would gives Hamas something to lose. So it wasn't just that 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 people in the government were sort of underestimating the military uh, prowess of Hamas, but really thinking that Hamas could be induced to be something else than what it was, which is a terrorist organization.
1: Well, and I, you were right to um, state that it, it, We don't know if the whole of government of Israel knew. Uh, the Times says it is uncertain that uh, this reporting could not indicate whether. Netanyahu knew or not. But I mean, wouldn't that be a failure in and of itself for something like this to not be go up to the highest levels considering? I mean, according to the Times, you have an analyst who is raising the alarm bell saying we're seeing Hamas fighters training exercises that match exactly what is in this blueprint that we have. They're using the same words that are in this blueprint. Why wouldn't that have gone up to the the top levels of the government?
4: Well, again, I can say as someone who spent a lot of time in the military and a lot of time in government, you get a lot of warnings uh, of this nature in Israel. We are in a terrible neighborhood uh, and surrounded by enemies on all sides. And so warnings are coming in every day and, frankly, all night. And there's a lot of fog. And you have to see through the fog and see, OK, what is the real threat here? And it's not always easy. This is not to exonerate or forgive anybody. Clearly, there was a serious intelligence failure here. But just to give you a sense of the complexity of these issues. I must say also that I'm a little bit disturbed by this uh, uh, report not just because of what it says about the intelligence failure but it seems to me already part of the I don't know sort of the the back and forth that uh, political back and forth about who is going to respond who's going to be responsible uh, for this intelligence failure whether it's going to be the military or the government. obviously somebody gave this report to the New York Times, and I have to ask myself what was the motivation behind that person in doing so
1: right but uh- That aside, you know, it is important reporting to understand, you know, what was known, what wasn't known uh, before this horrific attack on October 7th. I want to talk to you about uh, moving forward. As we we look at these next few hours, we don't know if this truce is going to hold, right? Um, It is right down to the wire. So that means that Israeli military operations could start back up right after The Biden administration has urged Israel to be more surgical with its military operations once the truce ends to limit civilian deaths. So far, the Hamas-controlled Palestinian health ministry says more than 14,000 civilians have died, many of them women and children. Here's what Secretary of State Antony Blinken said today. Let's listen.
2: Before Israel resumes major military operations, it must put in place humanitarian civilian protection plans that minimize further casualties of innocent Palestinians by clearly and precisely designating areas and places in southern and central Gaza where they can be safe and out of the line of fire.
1: Do you expect Israel to be receptive to these demands?
4: I think Israel's always been receptive to these demands, and they actually don't even have to be made as a demand. Um, Israel, both on the the moral plane, we have no interest in in causing civilian deaths uh, among the Palestinians, but also on the strategic level. Keep in mind, the more Palestinians who are hurt by, by the fact that they serve as human shields for Hamas, that actually creates political pressures on us to agree to a ceasefire, right? It's actually a boomerang. And, uh, and a ceasefire means Hamas wins. It means Hamas gets away with mass murder. It means 250,000 Israelis can't go back to their homes because they've been removed from those homes. They wouldn't go back if Hamas can reorganize and launch further strikes. And that's precisely what the leaders of Hamas said they're going to do. So it is not in Israel's strategic interest to increase the number of Palestinian casualties. Israel will do its utmost to limit those casualties, but it's going to be difficult because Hamas is going to continue to hide behind them and use them as shields, and we will try to be as as surgical as humanly possible. At the end of the day, we're fighting a vicious enemy who doesn't care anything about the lives of Palestinians, nothing.
1: But... So you say that Israel has been receptive to U.S. demands, but clearly the the Biden administration doesn't believe it has been receptive enough or hasn't been following it enough. Um, And we know that uh, per, you know, what the IDF has said in testimony that they have been using dumb bombs, which they say is to get to the the, the tunnels um, there in, in Gaza. Uh, that Hamas uses. Dumb bombs, though, are more indiscriminate, right? They, they kill more people. They're not surgical. So clearly, the Biden administration believes that it could be doing more to limit those civilian deaths. And do you worry that Israel's mission to destroy Hamas um, in the way that it is carrying this out with more than 14,000 deaths could actually backfire by, you know, radicalizing more people to sympathize with Hamas and then join its ranks?
4: Well, let me just take issue with the fourteen thousand. That's a, a, a statistic put out by Hamas, and let's be very straight about that. And Hamas retru- routinely inflates its numbers. We know that. We know they conflate the number of Palestinian terrorists who've been killed in that number, as well as the significant number of Palestinians who've been killed by Palestinian rockets that fall short. About thirty percent of their rockets fall short and fall on Palestinian neighborhoods. We all remember what happened to the Al Aqsa Hospital uh, several weeks ago. So, yes any casualties, doesn't matter what the number, are. two civilian casualties are too many, and it's in Israel's interest, as I said, morally and strategically, to limit that. Um, keeping in mind we're dealing with a, a densely uh, populated and densely built up area, and Hamas is under that area with th- over 300 miles of tunnels. Can you imagine what this is like uh, for a military to try to remove that threat? At the end of the day, Israel has to remove that threat. It, we cannot live as a country, and we will have to make some very difficult choices about the hostages. Uh, I don't know how long these truces can go on. We're trying our best to get as many women and children out of the hands of Hamas. But at the end of the day, let's be clear. Hamas will not give up all the hostages. The hostages are the get out of Gaza free card uh, for, the, for the Hamas. And they know that once they give up the last of those hostages, Israel then could flood those tunnels. It could set those tunnels afire. We can't do that as long as there are hostages there. Perhaps we can reach a situation a li- where – please,
1: go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you, you're talking about the hostages. I want to follow up on that um, because Hamas released mm-hmm. this video of, of Yarden Bibas today. He is the father of a four-year-old and 10-month-old. And just yesterday, Hamas claimed, without any evidence we should note, that the boys and their mother were killed by an Israeli airstrike. Now, we sh- CNN has no evidence of their deaths or the airstrike that Hamas is claiming. We are not showing the video of Yarden, but uh, we do have an image from it that we have showed. Um, and that image in this video, uh, it shows Yarden begging Israeli officials to bring him and his family home. Michael, what impact does a video like the one of Yarden Bibas have on the families of these hostages?
4: Well, it's not the video, it's actually the whole story of the Bibas family, which is uh, has become sort of emblematic for Israelis generally. Uh, if you notice that the the demonstrations um, calling for the release of all the the, the hostages are, are have orange balloons, and that's a, a reference to the the redheaded children here, um, and we don't know, we can't know, we can't verify whether Hamas has claimed that the that the, the that most of the family except for the young woman, the girl has been killed. Uh, we know in the past that Hamas has said that hostages have been killed. We found the bodies of two women who uh, allegedly according to Hamas had been killed by an Israeli airstrike but uh, forensic evidence showed that they were alive and that it had been executed by Hamas. So we don't know. Olivia if I could I just I don't think I responded to your your question and I wanted to get to it are will Israel be you know sort of risking the creating another generation of terrorists through its military activities in Gaza? Shall I answer that?
1: Um yes, go for it. We'll make time.
4: Yeah, go for it. Okay, thank you. Because it's an important point, and it comes out often, and it, it, it simply is this. First of all, if every time uh, a country went to war uh, against an evil enemy, uh, the United States in World War II thought it would uh, create more Nazis by destroying Nazi Germany, uh, then the United States would never have gone to war against Nazi Germany. Uh, and every time we've gone to war in the Middle East, and we've gone to war quite frequently since our founding in 1948, um, yes, we risk creating another generation of terrorists. But we have no option, of course. Um, this is our option, we have to live. But uh, the, the opposite, the, the, the positive side of this whole process is that every once in a while, people in the Middle East will internalize that war is not the w- way. You could get an Anwar Sadat in Egypt, and Egypt made war against us four times, wars of national destruction. Uh, Jordan went made war twice, wars of national destruction, and King Hussein internalized that this wasn't the way, and we made peace. And we made peace with the signatories of four uh, Arab countries who are a part, a part of the Abraham Accords. So it's not true that continued war is always going to create generations that want to wage war. Some generations will wake up and say, you know, maybe this is not the way to get a better future for our children and grandchildren. And that's the hope here. At the same time, we're going to have to continue to defend ourselves.
1: All right, Michael Oren, thank you for coming on to offer your perspective and analysis. Another long-awaited reunion caught on camera, an Israeli mother finally coming home to her husband and daughter she saved from being kidnapped nearly eight weeks ago. Her cousin is with us up next. You won't want to miss that. Plus, indicted Congressman George Santos defying calls once again to resign on the eve of another vote to expel him and claiming he is being bullied out of Congress.
5: Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Tonight, we are learning more about newly released hostage Yardin Gat. She's the Israeli mother who saved her family from Hamas when they were kidnapped on October 7th. After they all jumped out of a car that was taking them to Gaza, Yardin handed her three-year-old daughter to her husband and told them to run. While they escaped Hamas. Yardin did not. She hid behind a tree as Hamas gunmen closed in. And that was the last time they saw her, until now. More than 54 days later, they are finally together again. (laughs) (laughs) It is beautiful to see that reunion. Maya Roman, Yarden's cousin, who is also at the hospital, is here with us. Um, she, you were there to welcome her back. We should know, Maya, it's just watching this video, it is so emotional. I, I can't imagine how you feel as a family member who has just been hoping and praying all these days for her to come back safely. Um, you know, We can see just how anxious it has been for the family. Tell us more about your reunion and how is she doing now?
6: Yeah, um, the reunion was, of course, amazing. Um, We were all so excited to see her. Her daughter was so excited to see her. Um, You know, the the release that day uh, was postponed more and more. And so it was very late at night. And we woke up Geffen at um, 2 AM, told her that uh, we found mommy. And uh, she was just going crazy uh, at the house. ecstatic and, uh, you know, too nervous to, to, to explicitly say. I kept asking her, you know, do you know who we're going to meet? And she was like, you say it, you say it, because she <laughs> didn't want to say, uh, to say the word. Um, and then when they met, uh, me and the uh, the partners of Jordan's siblings kind of let them, you know, meet first alone. And then uh, we were waiting around the corner. Uh, So Geffen kind of came running towards us saying, uh, you have to come, mommy's back, you have to come, uh, and running through the hospital. Um, So of course it was extremely, extremely emotional, and um, Yardin is doing well considering what she's been through. Um, Obviously, it's been a very, very hard time, especially the first uh, few weeks when uh, she didn't know uh, that Geffen was alive and that alone was alive she had no idea uh, that she succeeded in saving them and uh, so she obviously said that it was very very tough um, but then she luckily was able to hear on the radio um, actually the first thing she heard was a song that um, her husband's cousin, uh, dedicated to Kineret, her mother-in-law that was murdered on that day. Um, and he dedicated it to her and to uh, Carmel Gat, her sister-in-law, who is still held by Hamas. And that is how she she understood, because he didn't mention Geffen, that Geffen and Alona are probably okay. Um, and so that was like the first time, yeah, that she could feel some relief. Um, she
1: was held in captivity 54 days when, at what point in captivity was it when she heard that and pieced it together
6: it was after about a month three weeks to a month something like that so for the first kind of month she really was in the dark um which uh, again she describes as as hell as you would imagine but um yeah once she understood what was happening it it, it helped her a lot and uh, she is as you can understand from the story of how she was kidnapped, she's an incredibly strong woman and um, is is still an incredibly strong woman. And the way she's dealing with with what she's been through is is just extremely inspirational. And, uh, you know, one of the main things that she was concerned about after she saw Geffen and saw that Geffen was all right, was again her sister-in-law and and where is she? And uh, has she come back already? And um, that is why we are still, You know, even though we're so happy and and celebrating in a way, we are still very concerned that uh, the rest of the hostages have to come back home. This includes Carmel, uh, who's 39. She's a young woman and one of the last women held by Hamas, uh, but also all of the other hostages and, and, you know, relatives of families that we have gotten to know so well during these past extremely, extremely uh, trying days. Um, yeah, so we are still very much thinking about them.
1: What an emotional roller coaster you have been through, Maya Roman. So much joy today with this reunion, but still so much angst um, with you know the fact that the sister-in-law is still held hostage and, and so many others are still held hostage at this hour. And only a, f- a few hours left the truce as it is going down to the wire. Thank you for joining us. Um, We are sending our best to you and your family, and we are so glad that they were able to to reunite. Thank you, Maya. Thank you. And back in the U.S., it is the eve of another vote to expel Congressman George Santos, and he's not backing down. Was this a threat?
5: If the House wants to start different precedent and expel me, that is going to be the undoing of a lot of members of this body, because this will haunt them in the future.
1: Well, George Santos could now be spending his final night as an elected representative in the United States Congress. We are just hours away now from a House vote to expel the embattled and indicted congressman from New York. This morning, Santos told reporters he's not giving up.
5: If I leave, they win. If I leave, the bullies take place. This is bullying.
1: Santos later took to the fight, uh, took the fight to the House floor, deflecting blame off himself and onto his colleagues.
5: It, It is a predetermined necessity for some members in this body to engage in this smear campaign to destroy me.
1: With more on the impending vote to expel Santos from Congress tomorrow, we are joined by Karen Finney, former communications director for the Democratic National Committee. Also joining us tonight is Republican strategist Alice Stewart, who also served as communications director for Ted Cruz. All right. So before we jump in, I want to just go over and remind our viewers what this ethics report released earlier uh, this uh, this month. Revealed, shall we? So it revealed uh, uh, misuse of campaign funds for vacation, spa and Botox treatments, even OnlyFans accounts, which is essentially a porn site. Uh, So it alleges he was using campaign funds for that. What are the chances, Karen, uh, that he is still a member of Congress after tomorrow? It seems
7: highly unlikely, I will tell you. And it was interesting. Today, one of the things we heard uh, members of Congress saying, that those who were trying to speak in, uh, in support of him, was, you know, the people should be able to decide. Well, Marist had a poll recently that said 75 percent of New Yorkers, 83 percent of Long Island residents and about 68 percent of the GOP in New York think he should step down. And as you recall, when we first learned last fall that he had, you know, completely lied and misled people about his resume. I mean, that seems like nothing compared to the rest of it yeah, at this just... point. Even then, people thought he should step down. So, you know, the pressure is on for the Republican Party, I think, to show that ethics actually matters.
1: Right. And and look, Republicans, I mean, they're, they're in agreement he is a serial liar No one is denying that, but there are some Republicans that we've heard from that are claiming, you know, that they're concerned about the precedent that this was set, expelling someone from Congress who has not at this point been convicted of a crime. Alice, how much do you think it is uh, the reluctance to expel him is that? establishing that precedent versus the fact they need his vote because they're such a slim margin.
8: Look, there's a, an argument to be made that he is a reliable vote. And for the Republicans that are only thinking about this through the political lens, they would rather c- keep him and let the voters vote him out of office. He's not running for re-election, but when his, his time is up. Look, here's what happens when we talk about luxury vacations and designer clothing. This is what happens when you have a caviar dreams on a congressional salary. It turns into a nightmare. And this is of his own doing. And what I'm hearing from Republicans, look, this is not a matter of him having his due process because he had the opportunity to answer these questions and put forth information before the ethics committee. He did not do so. And he had the opportunity to, uh, withdraw and step down as many have asked him he's not doing so so expulsion is the only answer and look this is not a matter of the precedent of someone who has never been not been convicted of being expelled from congress look this is about there are Conduct and standard of behavior amongst members of Congress, he has not met that. And rational Republicans that I've been speaking with saying yeah. he is a disgrace, not just to the Republican Party, but to politics, to, to Congress, yeah. and also to this country with his behavior. And what he did today, as he spoke out there on, on the floor, did not do him any favors. He lost votes. But, you know, I think
7: the question is for the Republican Party, given all that baggage and the baggage that they've been dealing with, with Kevin McCarthy and the chaos Will they actually be able to show they can come together and say, okay, enough is enough, I, you know, I think it's a it's a big risk for well, them. You bring up Kevin
1: McCarthy. I want to yeah. talk about, a little <laughs> bit about Kevin McCarthy because The Washington Post is detailing this phone call uh, that he apparently had with Donald Trump shortly after McCarthy was removed as speaker in the House in October. The Post reporting that when McCarthy asked why the former president did not ex- help him keep the speakership, Trump blasted McCarthy for not expunging his impeachments and for not endorsing his 2024 campaign. McCarthy then reportedly told the former president FU. Uh, and I spoke to a source who did confirm that McCarthy felt very sort of free and emboldened to, to tell it straight to Trump what he was feeling um, now that he has been ousted. What do you make of this? Uh,
8: given all that Kevin McCarthy has done to support Donald Trump and going down there to Mar-a-Lago when he supposedly couldn't eat after you know he, he lost, um, Donald Trump certainly should have had his back. This is a classic case of loyalty with Donald Trump is a one-way street. McCarthy was loyal to Trump. He did not return the favor. He encouraged uh, Matt Gaetz to oust him from uh, being speaker. And he didn't do anything to help him uh, when the votes were mounting up against him. And I don't blame McCarthy. I would have said dropped the F-bomb and a lot more. But his campaign, I spoke with someone from his team, said he, he says he didn't say that. He says they actually have a good relationship. They work well together. They talk quite often. They've agreed and disagreed in the past. And they have a good relationship. But, you know, but it's much better to talk about the yeah. F-bomb, then
7: kumbaya. <laughs> but here's what was also interesting in that piece. It talked about how people were saying Kevin McCarthy's rationale for why he hadn't endorsed. Like that was one of the issues Trump had. Concerns about fundraising. Concerns about protecting vulnerable members. So that also, I think that's a very important point that we should underscore. I know the F-bomb is exciting, but that tells you the Republican Party knows that with Trump on the ticket... They have a problem raising the money and the funds that they're going to need to compete in some of these House races, probably in Senate races as well. Meanwhile, Democratic fundraising is going very well. So I thought that was a very telling part of this story, that there were very real concerns that Kevin McCarthy had.
1: All right, Karen Finney, Alice Stewart, thanks, as always, for your wonderful analysis. Coming up, did Donald Trump's own attorney provide testimony that could get him convicted in the classified documents case? We'll be back. Federal prosecutors appear to have damning testimony against Donald Trump in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, and it comes from Trump's own attorney. ABC News first reported Jennifer Little told a grand jury that she had informed Trump last year that defying a subpoena for classified documents would be a crime. And a source told The New York Times, quote, Ms. Little told prosecutors that the former president clearly understood her warning." Joining us now is CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Ellie, how significant is this testimony from Trump's own attorney?
5: Pam, it's just straight up bad news for Donald Trump. Anyway, you look at this, this is testimony from his own former attorney that goes right to the heart of the obstruction charge in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, a case which, by the way, I already thought had the strongest evidence of any of the four cases against Donald Trump. Now you add this on top of it this attorney's testimony goes right to obstruction of justice. He says straight up, I told him we have a subpoena. I told him you have to obey it. I told him if you don't, it's a crime. And he said he understood. You lay that out for a jury, that's obstruction right there. And the thing that makes this witness extra powerful is she's not somebody who has an ax to grind with Donald Trump. She's not somebody who's going to be easily cross-examined. She hasn't had a falling out with him. In fact, she's still his lawyer Mm -hmm. right now, in another case. So it's gonna be really hard to attack her testimony Her testimony is gonna go to the heart of the issues.
1: Right, and uh, people might be thinking at home, well, hold on, so she's his attorney, why is she testifying about this? What about attorney-client privilege? Tell us, uh, explain to us, walk us through why and how she was able to tell a grand jury this without violating that.
5: Yes, completely understandable why people would think that because ordinarily conversations between attorneys and clients are privileged. They're confidential, you can't be made to testify against them. But there are narrow exceptions and the exception that a judge found here is what we call the crime fraud exception, meaning that these conversations were evidence of some sort of ongoing crime. And here the theory is, well, when this attorney and this attorney not part of the crime, but when she tells Donald Trump, if you do this, it's a crime and then he does it, that's going to qualify for the exception. And so a judge found that's why the attorney client privilege is pierced here. And that's why a jury's going to be able to hear this testimony.
1: All right. So let's switch over to another case. Uh, And this would be the New York civil fraud case. So we know the gag order on Trump and his lawyers in that case, it was reinstated by an appeals court today. What do you make of that?
5: It's not a surprising decision. And I think it's the right decision because this gag order is so narrow. The only thing it prohibits Donald Trump from talking about is the judge's staff, the clerk, the people who work in that courtroom. That's it. It leaves Donald Trump free to criticize the judge, the AG's office, the case against him, even the witnesses. So this is what you look for in a gag order. Look, judges have to be very, very careful when they do impose gag orders because any person in Donald Trump's position absolutely has very broad First Amendment rights, but they're not unlimited. And attacks on court staff, I'll tell you from my experience in courts, that is just out of bounds. You just... Do not do that. So, that is all that this gag order prohibits Donald Trump from doing. I think the appeals court got it right by holding it up.
1: And yet, later in the day, court officials had to knock down this uh, true social post from Trump with these false claims against the judge's wife. Uh, the, the former president shared yeah. these claims from a far right activist accusing the judge's wife of writing negative stories about him, but none of it is true. So, what does Trump get out of further agitating the judge here?
5: Oh my goodness, I have no idea why he would do this, why he would think it's a good idea. It's false to start with. It's wildly inappropriate to follow up with. And other judges, not just this judge, but remember, he's got four other cases, four other criminal cases. They're watching this. They're keeping an eye on what he's doing. It's a horrible idea. It's dangerous. uh, And it's worthy of our reprimand. And uh, look, there's just, it it doesn't technically violate the words of this gag order because the judge's wife is not a member of the staff but it's wildly inappropriate and should be condemned.
1: All right, Ellie Honig, thank you so much. Coming up, a long concealed critical report that leaders of the Coast Guard, well, they didn't want you to see it, but our team of investigative colleagues, we are gonna show you what this report reviewed because we got a copy of it. And we're about to share the alarming findings that expose racism, hazings, and incidents of sexual assault across the agency. We'll be right back. A documented culture of racism, hazing, discrimination, and sexual assault exists within the U.S. Coast Guard. Top officials at the agency spent almost a decade trying to make sure that you don't see what's in the report that we have now obtained. I'm talking about what's called an almost ironically titled Culture of Respect study. For eight years, the Coast Guard tried to keep it hidden, but CNN has it. And it reveals some alarming conclusions based on interviews with hundreds of Coast Guard employees, including that Coast Guard personnel accept poor behavior as status quo. The Coast Guard does not provide sufficient measures to prevent sexual assault. The Coast Guard personnel have been discriminated against and sexually harassed. And CG indicates we will not tolerate discrimination. Yet, even when found guilty of these offenses, there are no consequences. One Coast Guard employee said, the attitude is, hey, I got through it, so can you. And the culture was, boys will be boys. Well, this report was from 2015, but CNN has spoken to dozens of current and former Coast Guard employees who say the culture, well, it hasn't changed. Our investigative team, reporters Blake Ellis, Melanie Hick and Audrey Ash and I did our first story on the culture of cover-up within the Coast Guard um, back about five months ago. And at the time, we uncovered Yet another damning report, that one focused on sexual assault at the Coast Guard Academy. That report, like this newly discovered one, was purposely buried for years. After our story, Congress held hearings. Coast Guard Commandant Linda Fagan promised transparency.
4: I'm committed to improving our prevention efforts, prompt and thorough investigations into reports of sexual assault and harassment, accountability for perpetrators, compassionate support to victims, and full transparency with Congress and the American
8: people.
1: Yet this 2015 report, which also focuses on racism and bullying, was not released. Over the course of our investigation, we talked to so many people who are survivors of sexual assault in the Coast Guard, hazing, racial discrimination, sexism, and that they believe that if these reports had been made public, perhaps the culture would have changed and what happened to them might have been prevented.
8: When I saw the Cultural Respect Report, I, I knew that if they had implemented the vast majority of the recommendations that it absolutely could have prevented what happened to me and not just me. What continues to happen to service members and federal civilians across the entire U.S. Coast Guard.
1: Well, after eight years of preventing its release, the Coast Guard says it will release this report to the public next week. And that will be at the same time it releases the results of a 90-day review that was ordered after CNN's first story. A spokesperson says of the 129 recommendations laid out in 2015 in the Culture of Respect Report, 60 have been at least partially enacted and nine more are in the works. Well, up next, a fascinating new look at one of the most stunning crimes in American history that many of you may not even know about. Airing this Sunday, the all-new CNN film Chowchilla about one of the most shocking true crime stories that you've never heard. It's about the 1976 kidnapping of a school bus full of children and their driver who were buried underground for more than 12 hours before pulling off their own dramatic escape.
2: They escorted me where there was a hole in the ground with a ladder coming out. I looked down the ladder and I could see Ed Ray. The kidnappers gave him one flashlight. I did not want to go down there. I knew if I went down that hole, I was never coming back out. Time froze. And then Ed Ray grabs my ankle This says, come outside, it'll be okay. And I climbed down into there.
1: That is horrifying. The new CNN film Chilla, premieres this Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Well, thank you so much for joining us. CNN News Night with Abby Phillips starts right now.
5: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, We want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.